Today is Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2024, and a Happy New Year. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. And do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The Personal Computer Show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the minds of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live. That's L-I-V-E. Streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Big Tech Dumped Products and Services in 2023 We saw the end of many once-loved products and services all swallowed up into the great dark pit of corporate consolidation. 2024 is likely to be just as bloody. This was a bad year to be a tech worker, and probably just as bad to be tech itself. The great tech layoff spree continued on from 2022 as Silicon Valley tried to cut costs by tossing staff to the curb and killing any products or services deemed too extraneous. This happens every year, but in 2023 we saw more than the usual amount of fat trimming. Big tech didn't just dump products just dump products people were using, it closed down services that people depended on. As streaming has continued to refute its initial promise by forcing ads on users who can't pay a premium, numerous services such as Apple Music and Netflix have cut off lower-cost subscription tiers. Google has refocused its entire apparatus on pushing AI products, and that means other projects gotta go. At the top of the list is Google Stadia, the company's cloud gaming platform. We saw the impacts that mega mergers like the multi-billion Warner Brothers Discovery had on user and products and content. Not to put too fine a point on it, everything got worse. Next year, we'll start to see the real impact of the $69 billion Microsoft merger with Activision Blizzard. Apple Watch ban temporarily paused by the U.S. court. A federal appeals court has temporarily paused the ban on the import and sale of the Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2 models in the United States. Apple had been forced to stop selling the watches in the United States after the International Trade Commission determined it had infringed on patents held by medical technology company Massimo. An Apple Watch import ban had been temporarily stopped by a U.S. appeals court. 
It means the tech giant will still be able to sell the latest version of the product during the busy holiday season. A bandwidth impact the Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2 and comes after a patent dispute with medical monitoring technology company Massimo. The tech giant filed an appeal to the International Trade Commission after the Biden administration decided to let the order banning the watches stand. Finally, a telescope named Einstein is heading to space. Space's latest X-ray telescope, aptly named after the most famous physicist of all time, is poised to unveil the mysteries of nature's most extreme phenomena. The Einstein probe, an X-ray telescope managed by the Chinese Academy of Sciences, will be ready to launch next month. The probe will look for transient events in X-ray light and try to answer some fundamental questions about black holes and gravitational waves. Hubble, Chandra, Spitzer, and Webb, undoubtedly iconic names, but now, in a long overdue development, we're finally going to have a space-based telescope named after the famed German-born theoretical physicist Albert Einstein. The Einstein probe was built in collaboration with ESA and the Max Planck Institute Extraterrestrial Physics. In return for their contributions in hardware and scientific consultations, ESA will get access to 10% of the probe's data, according to an agency release. The release did not state when in January the launch would be attempted. Einstein carries two science instruments, the Wild Field X-ray Telescope, that's called the WXT, and the follow-up X-ray telescope, that's the FXT. The former uses the new lobster-eye optics to take data on a sweeping field of the sky. The latter scrutinizes specific objects spotted in WXT's sweeping look at the cosmos. The lobster-eye optic means that the WXT takes in X-ray light in square tubes in a grid similar to a lobster's parallel square paws. Using this technology, the Einstein probe will be capable of observing 3,600 square degrees, just under one-tenth of the celestial sphere in a single shot, according to ESA. In three 96-minute orbits of Earth, the probe can image almost the entire night sky. Einstein will launch on a long-march rocket from the Xiang Satellite Launch Center in south-central China. The mission's expected timeline is three years. Over its lifetime, the probe is expected to collect data that will shed light on several cosmic phenomena, including the frequency of black holes in the universe and their physics, including the nature of their feeding and the massive high-energy jets of matter they power. The probe will also study stars that go supernova and the sources of gravitational waves which include black holes and neutron stars. Einstein will emit alert signals to other telescopes when notable events are found, helping scientists to collect as much data as they can on fleeting phenomena. New York Times sues Microsoft and OpenAI. The New York Times is suing ChatGPT owner OpenAI over claims its copyright was infringed to train the system. 
the lawsuit, which also names Microsoft as a defendant, says the firm should be held responsible for billions of dollars in damages. ChatGPT and other large language models, that's LLMs, learn by analyzing a massive amount of data, often sourced online. The lawsuit claims millions of articles published by the New York Times were used without its permission to make ChatGPT smarter and claims the tool is now competing with the newspaper as a trustworthy information source. It alleges that when asked about current events, ChatGPT will sometimes generate verbatim excerpts from New York Times articles, which cannot be accessed without paying for a subscription. According to the lawsuit, this means readers can get New York Times content without paying for it, meaning it is losing out on subscription revenue as well as advertising clicks from people visiting the website. It also gave the example of the Bing search engine, which has some feature powered by ChatGPT, producing results taken from the New York Times' own website without linking to the article or including referral links it uses to generate income. Microsoft has invested more than $10 billion in OpenAI. The lawsuit filed in Manhattan Federal Court reveals the New York Times unsuccessfully approached Microsoft and OpenAI in April to seek an amicable resolution over its copyright. It comes a month after a period of chaos at OpenAI where co-founder and CEO Sam Altman was sacked and then rehired over the course of a few days. His sacking shocked industry insiders and led to staff threatening a mass resignation unless he was reinstated. But, as well as the internal issues, the firm is now facing multiple lawsuits filed in 2023. In September, a similar copyright infringement case was brought by a group of U.S. authors, including Game of Thrones, novelist Bill R.R. Martin, and John Grisham. That followed legal action brought by comedian Sarah Silverman in July, as well as an open letter signed by authors Margaret Atwood and Philip Pullman that same month calling for AI companies to compensate them for using their work. And OpenAI is also facing a lawsuit alongside Microsoft and programming site GitHub from a group of computing experts who argue their code was used without their permission to train an AI called Copilot. As well as these actions, there have been many cases brought against developers of so-called generative AI, that is, artificial intelligence that can create media based on text prompts, with artists suing text-to-image generators, Stability AI, and MidJourney in January, claiming they only function by being trained on copyrighted artwork. None of these lawsuits have yet been resolved. Google will settle $5 billion lawsuit over tracking incognito Chrome users. The complaint said Google deceived people. Google's Chrome has long featured the ability to launch the browser in incognito mode, offering a seemingly blank slate for your internet browsing, away from your usual cookies, forms, and web history. But that seemingly didn't mean Google wasn't keeping an eye on where you were browsing. The company faced a lawsuit in 2020 
that accuse it of tracking Chrome users' activities even when they were using incognito mode. Google has now agreed to settle the complaint that originally sought $5 billion in damages after failing to get the suit dismissed. The plaintiff said Google used tools like its analytic product, apps and browser plugins to monitor the users. By tracking someone on incognito, the company was falsely making people believe they could control the information that they were willing to share with it. The lawsuit's plaintiff revealed internal emails that allegedly showed conversations between Google execs proving that the company monitored incognito browser usage to sell ads and track web traffic, which does sound like a thing Google would do. According to Reuters and the Washington Post, neither side has made the details of the settlement public. Why has Google killed off so many of its projects? Here are some of the Google projects that were discontinued in 2023. Google Domains, Google Jamboard, Dropcam, Google Optimize, Google Cloud Internet of Things, Core, Google Album Archive, and Grasshopper. And if you ask me, what are these programs? Well, don't bother because they don't exist anymore. Why has Google killed off so many of its projects? Google, like Microsoft or Apple, wants you to like it as a company. If you dislike a certain company, you stop using its products. It doesn't kill off anything without what it thinks is a good reason. Google simply has more products or kills them before they can lose enough money to affect the bottom line. That's the thing. Google may have different reasons for stopping different products, but one thing in common every time is a consideration for the bottom line. Google's not a charity and exists only to make as much money as it can while it may have started as a cool idea in a garage somewhere, Google is now one of the largest and most valuable companies in the world. The people in charge want to keep it that way. Google is too large for everyone to work together on everything and is split into a lot of smaller, more manageable teams. These groups each have a central focus, and sometimes that focus changes or is merged into its parent. Look at Inbox as an example. While it died as a standalone app, the idea and the implementation is still alive and baked into Gmail apps for Android, iOS, and the web. Some of Inbox is still there, at least in spirit, the parts that Google thinks best takes advantage of its strengths. Good ideas never die at Google. They just merge into apps that makes money. The same can be said for other apps. Google News and Weather combined with Google Reader to bring us Google News. You still have your local news setting and curated list of national and tech news, but it's in a different package. This is because Google spends a lot of time experimenting and trying to find a way to give us what we want in the most efficient way possible and serve ads, of course, as efficiently as possible, too. Some of these experiments die, like Google+. Others move to a full-fledged money-making product, like Google Fi, formerly known as Project Fi, or Google Assistant, formerly Google Now. These dead products and iterations are really just a byproduct of how Google innovates. Google likes to move quickly to compete in a specific way 
Then take the time to ask questions like how it can do it better once it's already started. Google has very stiff competition from Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft for almost every one of its potential money-making products and services. It can't afford to move slowly and take the time to make the final decision and stick with it. Google likes to throw out ideas and see if they stick. Killing products and innovations goes hand-in-hand in other ways, too. All you need to do is look at Google's strategy on chat to see that Hangouts, Allo, and Google Talk are dead or dying. You never know what Google will kill next. Google Messages is trying to take the best parts of each and bundle it all into one Google Chat app. Will it be successful? Who knows? No one really knows. Google only knows that it needs to keep trying until it finds the right formula, no matter how long it takes or how many different apps it has to go through. People feel real anxiety about Google product lineup, especially those on the margins of profitability or the ones the company considers experiments. It's five years into its Pixel project that, despite building some of the best Android phones, it's likely not making much money. People are anxious about what Google will kill next. What about Stadia? Google's been at the cloud gaming platform for a year and is attracting AAA games, in other words, AAA top games, and signing deals with major publishers. But there's still a lingering suspicion that, unlike Xbox and PlayStation, Google could pull the plug at any time. Game developers are weary of investing too much time into Stadia, not just because the return isn't there yet, but because Google's history of killing off unsuccessful projects may leave them in a hole in a few years, or that audiences may feel the same way and just choose to avoid the platform altogether. The most recent bout of killing off a project is the Nest Secure, led to thousands of people complaining that they're left with an expensive piece of hardware that won't be supported for much longer. And after a long, slow exploration, Google Play Music played its last notes, even though its replacement, YouTube Music, still hasn't inherited all of its features. And Google isn't done killing products, and you never know what will be next on the chopping block. Outside of the core products like Search, Google Ads, and Gmail, every single product is fair game if Google thinks it can do it better. Why is there no federal data privacy law? Well, there are compliance costs and obstacles. Federal data privacy legislation has been introduced before, but has never passed Congress. Smaller companies and larger companies have objected to this legislation for different reasons. Small businesses, which make up 99.9% of American businesses, have argued that they are unable to afford the compliance costs associated with implementing and following a federal data privacy law. These businesses have argued that if they were forced to comply with a federal data privacy law, consumers would be the ones to pay the price in the form of higher costs for goods and services and reduce access to new and innovative products and services. Larger companies have historically been opposed to the concept of a federal data privacy law until the passage of the California Consumer Privacy Act and other states' data privacy laws. Ten years ago, 
state data privacy laws were at the drawing board stage, and now a number of states have passed such laws. Since each state's law is different, large companies that do business across the United States, including companies like Amazon, AT&T, Dell, Ford, IBM, and Walmart, are now in favor of a federal data privacy law. Having to comply with only one federal data privacy law, as opposed to a slew of different state laws, costs less. What we have today is the obscure Google deal. Google's doomed social network buzz led U.S. regulators to force Google and Meta to monitor their own data use. Before Google's disastrous social network, Google Plus came the less remember Google Buzz launch in 2010. Buzz survived less than two years, but its mishandling of people's personal data motivated the first in a series of legal settlements that, though imperfect, are to this day the closest the United States has come to establishing extensive rules for protecting privacy online. When users set up a Buzz account, Google automatically created a friend network made up of people they email, horrifying some people by exposing private email addresses and secret relationships. Washington regulators felt compelled to act, but Google had not broken any national privacy law. The United States didn't have one. The Federal Trade Commission improvised, and in 2011, Google reached a 20-year legal settlement with the agency for allegedly misleading users with its policies and settings. The decree created a sweeping privacy standard for just one tech company, requiring Google through the year 2031 to maintain a comprehensive privacy program and allow external assessments of its practices. The next year, the FTC signed Facebook onto a near-identical consent decree, settling allegations that the company now known as Meta had broken its own privacy promises to users. Current and former employees of Meta and Google who worked on privacy initiatives show that internal reviews forced by consent decrees have sometimes blocked unnecessary harvesting and access of users' data, but current and former privacy workers from low-level staff to top executives increasingly view the agreements as outdated and inadequate. Their hope is that the U.S. lawmakers enact a solution that helps authorities keep pace with advances in technology and constrain the behavior of far more companies. Congress does not look likely to act soon, leaving the privacy of hundreds of millions of people who entrust personal data to Google and Meta backstopped by the two consent decrees. The FTC is undertaking an ambitious effort to modernize its deal with Meta, but appeals by the company could drag the process out for years and kill the prospect of future decrees. While Meta and Google and a handful of other companies subject to consent decrees are bound by at least some rules, the majority of tech companies remain unfettered by any substantial federal rules to protect the data of all their users including some serving more than a billion people globally, such as TikTok and Apple. Amazon entered its first agreement this year, and it covers just its Alexa virtual assistant 
after allegations that the service infringed on children's privacy. But without clear privacy protection rules from lawmakers that bind every company, the limited scope of the consent decrees allows too many problematic decisions to be made. In the wake of Facebook's Cambridge Analytica data-sharing scandal in 2020, the agency agreed to step up restrictions on the company and extended Meta's original consent decree by about a decade to the year 2040. In May of this year, the FTC accused Meta of failing to cut off outside developer access to user data and protect children from strangers in messenger kids. As a remedy, the agency wants one of its judges to impose the most drastic restrictions ever sought in a privacy decree, which is spooking the broader business community. Meta is fighting the proposal, calling it an obvious power grab by an illegitimate decision maker. There are proposals raised for data privacy regulations. Members of Congress have raised proposals for data privacy regulations that would set a standard for all companies to follow, similar to U.S. state and European privacy laws. These proposals aim to establish new rights for users and impose costly penalties for violators. The goal is to increase compliance for different business models and practices by enacting a comprehensive statute that establishes clear rules for collecting, processing, and transferring personal information of Americans. The privacy of every American on the Internet is seen as reliant on the few safeguards offered by consent decrees. Well, Google's response to privacy concerns and their approach to privacy has evolved over time. In the past, Google fostered a culture of freewheeling experimentation with few precautions. But that changed after a settlement with the Federal Trade Commission in 2012. The settlement required Google to be more upfront with people about the collection and use of personal data and establish a central privacy team. Since then, Google has implemented stricter privacy measures, including reviewing every product launch and analyzing the implications of everything the company releases into the world. Meta's privacy scandals and consent degrees have also resulted in Meta, formerly known as Facebook, where they face privacy scandal and consent decrees. In 2012, Meta signed its first agreement with the FTC after disclosing some users' personal details without notice and consent. The company pledged to establish a comprehensive privacy program but faced challenges in reviewing everything it does today. In 2018, it was revealed that Meta allowed partner apps to misuse personal information, leading to a $5 billion penalty and an updated consent decree with stricter requirements. Meta is now required to conduct a privacy review of every launch that affects user data and has increased its staff focus on privacy. The company has to certify internally on a quarterly basis how it's protecting users' data, and failure to complete regular privacy training can lock employees out of corporate systems indefinitely. The future of consent degrees. Well, where, where does that stand? 
the legal battle between Meta and the FTC could be the turning point for consent decrees. The FTC acknowledges that a federal privacy law is long overdue, even as it tries to make consent decrees more powerful. The limited power of consent decrees to encourage good behavior is evident in Meta's case, where the mandated assessments didn't catch all the shortcomings. The outcome of this legal battle may shape the future of privacy regulations and the effectiveness of consent decrees. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and how they intertwine and how they work with each other, or, or, or usually we do. Uh, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be going into just an exploration of some of the different topics that are less tech and more work. They involve some terms that you may have heard, but you didn't understand. Maybe you know of them. You've been engaged in them, but you're not really quite sure how to free yourself. What are the upsides? What are the downsides? So I'm going to just generally talk about these items. They are quiet quitting, quiet firing, loud quitting, and quiet hiring. Again, we're going to be doing them in that order, and those will be through the next few weeks. That first one, quiet quitting. This has been one of the bigger terms that we've heard over the course of the last, uh, I'm going to say, year and a half to two years. And I have talked about it before. It is the idea of going into work, whether it's remote, of, of course, or, or, or in the workplace, whether hybrid or whatever. It's a matter of not quite putting forth your 100%. And that can come from a, a variety of different areas where you are no longer motivated because you see your peers slacking off. You are no longer motivated because pay hasn't kept up with inflation or things like that. It could be a matter of you, you just no longer feel like an important cog in the machine that is the office. It doesn't matter how we got there. It does involve a number of different parallel terms. The bare minimum Mondays, the uh, which is kind of in addition to your casual Fridays. Uh, it, it involves uh, career cushioning. That's another term that I heard it, where you're just kind of, you know, you know I, I'm just looking for a little bit more life in my work-life balance. Now, a lot of this really stemmed from COVID. A lot of this, I mean, these are things that have existed for years, but we got a little bit more of this because people were at home and they realized how important life was to them in that work-life balance and they wanted to shift it forward. So pushing back some of those deadlines just softly, you didn't say, hey, boss, I, I'm not going to meet that deadline. No, you just said, uh, I'll try. Um, and then you get to that deadline, but you're a week late. And then the next one, you're a little bit later and so forth. And you, you've kind of pushed back. This isn't this is not a good direction to go in because eventually, yes, you will you will be found out to be the person who is least productive on the team. Look, that's a bad thing. Becoming. Too much of a quiet quitter is going to put you earlier on any kind of chopping block. Yeah, um, 
you may no longer be putting in the above and beyond, but are you really meeting expectations when you become a quiet quitter? And the part of that term there is in the quitter part. Now, on the employee side, or employer side, rather, uh, on the boss side, there are a number of different things that that are going to be happening there. You're going to see that people aren't really sparkling anymore. That star, uh, that 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 life is no longer there, and things start slipping. Look. I'm going to tell you, for an employer, this is tough. This is this is a situation where you know we need to understand that we need to pay people, we need to encourage them, we need to uh, fulfill the some value into their lives through the work side of work life balance. So I, I want you to find ways to rekindle the fire in your employee. Find something that is going to reignite passion. It is not always going to be money. Sometimes is. Frequently, people say it is. But really, you've got to find ways to encourage them. You also need to watch out for where it's happening. You need to listen to the unsaid. You need to watch for those little indications that people are lifeless, And it's because it's quiet and maybe a little bit harder to spot. Sometimes it's easier, but, uh, you know, because you can see that one employee that is really doing nothing. But are they quiet quitting or are they loud quitting? We'll talk about that loud quitting coming up in a couple of weeks. One of the things on the employee side, I want you to think about what you're doing. I want you to think about engaging with your manager and expressing what is what is really a good driver for you and asking for projects that in excite you that entice you yes in some roles yeah it's going to be hard it's going to be one of those situations where uh okay all i do all day is put doors on the side of a ford f150 truck um, you know, maybe find out if there's a way you can cross train and, and get better somewhere else. And, and that's an exciting route up. Look for something that that you can be passionate about instead of becoming just that corporate zombie. Uh, and, you know, maybe you're already doing a lot of different things. Maybe what's going to drive your passion is focusing down onto a project, a singular project, and abandoning all of the fluff and the the operational day-to-day. Hey, boss, I want to focus in on this thing. I think this is going to be great. Let me Let me spend two weeks focusing on one project instead of all these 72 different other projects. You know, find... Find what it's going to be that's that's going to help you thrive. And from the employer perspective, find out what what's going to make to what it's going to take to make me thrive in the workplace or your employee. Rather, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Concerns of Artificial Intelligence Replacing Human Employees AI is a productivity enhancer, not a replacement of workers. 
the rise of artificial intelligence has sparked concerns about the potential replacement of human employees by machines. Artificial intelligence should be seen as a tool to augment human intelligence rather than a complete replacement for human employees. While AI can automate certain tasks and processes, human abilities such as imagination, anticipation, judgment, and adaptability are unique and cannot be replicated by AI alone. Generative AI has benefited numerous industries in 2023 through machine learning advancements that automate certain time-consuming workflows. However, as adoption accelerates, so do concerns about displacing jobs. Administrative workloads have become really cumbersome. Tasks have reached levels nearly impossible to achieve with using employees alone, sparking the need for AI. The goal of AI is to be a productivity enhancer and not serve as a replacement to a creative, intelligent workforce. We need to automate and enhance really cumbersome, time-consuming workflows that previously took countless hours from workers. The objective is to build AI-powered software that automates and enhances productivity. That includes end-to-end in the workflow from inception to the delivery of a product or service. Historical examples such as the Industrial Revolution demonstrate that while certain jobs may be replaced by new technologies, new jobs are also created. The introduction of AI is likely to lead to a shift in the types of jobs available rather than a complete elimination of employment opportunities. Companies need to invest in retraining and upskilling their employees to adapt to the changing work landscape. For example, Amazon has announced a voluntary program called Upskilling 2025, which aims to teach employees skills that can be applied to technical roles both within and outside the company. Rather than replacing employees, AI can often take on technical tasks, freeing up workers to focus on other responsibilities and increasing their overall productivity. AI can assist optimizing work processes, making employees more valuable to their employers. The impact of AI on employment extends beyond individual concerns. There are broader discussions about the need for educational institutions to adapt and prepare individuals for the evolving job market. Some argue that the changes brought about by AI could provide opportunities to reassess our societal relationship with employment and explore alternative modes of production and leisure. It is important to approach the concerns of AI replacing human employees with a balanced perspective. While AI has the potential to automate certain tasks, it also presents opportunities for skill development, job creation, and increased productivity when used in conjunction with human capabilities. By embracing AI and focusing on skills development, individuals can position themselves to thrive in the evolving work landscape. Is Windows 11 just a bridge OS system? Windows 11 continues to be a less than stellar success for Microsoft. The most recent set of figures it reported were uninspiring. Despite a looming end of support for Windows 10 
and although customers can pay for an extension, the OS remains dominant and Windows 11 trails behind where its predecessor had been in terms of installations at the same point in its life cycle. The consensus seems to be that Windows 12 will arrive sometime this year. Microsoft hardware partners are expecting it. One reason for this could be Windows 11's hardware requirements, which mean that decent spec PCs are incapable of running it. Microsoft and OEMs clearly hope affected customers would buy new computers to make the upgrade, but instead, many have chosen to stick with Windows 10. At this point, it is difficult to see Windows 11 as much more than a self-inflicted wound. Microsoft alienated customers and in an attempt to force a hardware refresh, ended up further fracturing the Wintel alliance. The tragedy here is that there's nothing particularly wrong with Windows 11. Yet the threat of artificially high hardware requirements won't go away. So how do Microsoft and its hardware partners move on from here? Microsoft is hoping that where the stick of Windows 11 hardware requirements failed, the carrot of AI-enabled PCs might win the day. Companies including HP and Lenovo are working on machines dubbed AI PCs, but remain tight-lipped on the specifics. Then there is the specter of risk, which continues to nibble at the PC marketplace formerly dominated by Intel. In October, NVIDIA was said to be developing a risk-based CPU for the PC market, one specifically designed to run on Windows. This is despite Microsoft's past attempts that left customers yearning for more conventional hardware. All of this gives us some clues about what Microsoft might, or on the other hand, might not do with Windows 12. And what about the next generation? The consensus seems to be that Windows 12 will arrive sometime this year. Microsoft's hardware partners are expecting it, and some might see it as a savior, given the relatively low uptake of Windows 11. As for when it will happen, history teaches us that the update will likely reach users around October of this year. Reports have emerged of Windows 11 24H2 being cited in logs, which would seem to confirm this. Windows 11 itself initially showed up as Windows 10 build. Other factors to consider regarding the timing is that Microsoft had said it would ship a version of Windows 11 in March of 2024, shorn of Edge and Bing for European users. The next major release of Windows in 2024 would therefore turn up towards the end of the year. What would be in this release? For one, Microsoft needs to crack Windows on risk as manufacturers wants to build hardware using Qualcomm new Snapdragon X Elite. Apple has ably demonstrated that it's possible to move on from Intel-based chips. However, some serious work is needed in Windows to fully take advantage of the new hardware. So what can we expect? Well, October 2024, well, it's only 10 months away and we'll see. And as a reminder for Microsoft, 
So long as you require TPM 2.0, and it continues to be a requirement, this new Windows you're coming up with may have a difficulty gaining traction. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, you, you've got a number of reviews along the way. We, we've been talking all kinds of different things. What do you have for us this week? Well, I've got something that, uh, well, you might wonder if it's hot, but this answers the question. It's the Typer HT03. Typer is T-Y-P-H-U-R for spelling addicts. Instaprobe handheld thermometer. And this is a quick read. There you read. go. Hot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is the quickest read. Uh, thermometer for grilling and ovens and that kind of thing that I've seen. It folds out. You stick the probe into what you're cooking to gauge its cooking progress. Mm -hmm. Now, you've probably okay. seen that before in other products with more or less the same profile. Yeah. But here's what makes the Typer Instaprobe very interesting. In just three quarters of a second, it takes a very precise temperature reading accurate within half a degree Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Okay. A big OLED display that stays right side up, whether you unfold the probe uh, or to come off the top or the bottom of the main case. Mm -hmm. It's got a pair of AAA cells inside to power it for a very long time. Look, grilling season may or may not be over for you, mm -hmm. but your oven's going to be seeing more action in the months ahead. And if you and your guests don't like overcooked or undercooked stuff, a Typher Insta Probe uh, shouldn't be underappreciated or overlooked. It's about okay. 110 bucks on Amazon and elsewhere online. I like that. Uh, I, now I do wish we would uh, somebody would come up with some uh, some foolproof way so I know that I'm getting the right the temperature from the right part of the uh, of the steak as I'm cooking it. Or maybe maybe I just need to read the instructions. You 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 might want to you know, there's this, your browser does more than show you news headlines. Yes. You, you can ask it, where do I probe the steak to know it's been cooked? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I get in the middle of this steak, but like how far in? And, you know, it, it's like, I, I guess I don't want to touch the steak. No, you, you don't. But I have, to, I have I, to tell you, at the same time, mm -hmm. taking... The top side, taking the center and taking the bottom are three different readings. Yeah, yeah. So in cooking the steak, I always start with time. Mm -hmm. And when it looks done, feels done, and gives me the kind of give that says it's done, that's when the probe goes in. Okay. Yeah, I also have to take a look at the device. The probe is, hmm, I'm guessing three, four millimeters from the end of the point of, I'm sorry, the thermal sensor is three yeah. or four millimeters from the point of the probe. Okay. So you now can guess how far you're putting the probe in and what's really measuring. Of course, the probe itself is conductive, so it's going to average that little tunnel. Okay. That's more than anybody wanted to know about thermometers. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm well informed. I'm sure you've got other products. Let's go on to the next well, let's one. Let's talk about the IATI ION Wireless Charging Duo 15-Watt Wireless Cheat Stand and Pad. Okay. okay Wireless, you know, magnetic charging. It, it's been around since, I don't know, Christopher Columbus took a detour <laughs> and his GPS wasn't working. Several weeks ago, 
months ago, I, I reviewed the I, I, the IATI handset car mount, and, and okay, yeah. I, I think it's wonderful with a 10 watt Qi wireless charge. I know 15 watts is starting to show up, but they told me they have a 15 watt Qi wireless stand and pad duo for the desktop or tabletop or nightstand. Unless you lay your handset against its easel stand to get it charged at 15 watts, and mm -hmm. you can put a Qi chargeable watch or earbud case or another handset or whatever down on its pad for a 5 watt charge at the same time. Put an iPhone on the stand, and it still only charges 7.5 watts, but if you're Android, you're going to get more. It mm -hmm. charges my yeah. Google Pixel 6 Pro at the full 15 watts, delivers a, a little slower than wire charging, if a lot more convenient. But note that on the official Pixel stand, my Pixel 6 Pro charges at 23 watts, the same as optimal wire charging. So the 15-watt IAT Ion Wireless Duo Qi charger is good if you don't have that Pixel Charger Pro, uh, and it's about 50 bucks online. Nice. All right. Uh, we have time for another one? We have, uh, yeah, just under two minutes. Okay, let's talk about the Maras MSG100 Smart Wi-Fi Garage Door Opener Controller. And we've covered a lot of these controllers. The, the Maras mm -hmm, yeah. wires into the garage door openers to provide a temporary activation connection, you know, like shorting it out. Comes with a magnet and reed switch on a wire harness to sense when the garage door is closed. Its app offers lots of ways to open and close it, to deal with times, to, to do all that stuff. It has UL equivalent certification by ETL. Note that its operating temperature range is from 32 to 104 degrees, so your garage may get both colder and hotter than that. Okay. Uh, it won't be damaged, but it just might not work. It needs a strong 2.4 gigahertz low-band Wi-Fi signal. Its app covers most of the same functions, the brand-name Wi-Fi-connected garage door openers, and uh, this Maros MSG100 is less than 30 bucks at Amazon. That's good stuff. You know, if, if, if getting control over your garage door, getting the feedback on that is is a key item for smart homes. So I, I've struggled on finding a good product for that. And and look, if, if you're in bed and your eyes are closed and your spouse is asking, is the garage door closed? I'd rather go to my phone than go to the garage. Sure. Or just shout out to your Alexa device or, or, or <laughs> a Google a Google Home Assistant, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Love that stuff. So, is it snowing? <laughs> Not here, but who knows? Sometime soon, hope. I hope, I hope, I hope. This is Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. We've got a number of different items that we want to just give you an idea for the holidays. A little bit of a gift guide. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, Thursday, January the 4th, 2024. They'll be kicking off the new year at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, January the 5th of the new year at 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and their website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, 
January the 9th, 2024, at 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. Phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. And the Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, January the 12th, 2024, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.